What to do about Joe Rogan? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. The controversy over the podcaster continues to intensify with the revelation that he used the N-word against black people dozens of times on the air in some of his comedic acts. Spotify, which is the company that is paying him $100 billion to carry his podcast, well, they're in something of a pickle. And joining us to talk about this is Lindsay Singleton. She is the managing director for Rock Solutions, which is a bipartisan public affairs firm, and she specializes in social impact practice. Um, Lindsay, first of all, I want to read to you the comment from the CEO. He sent a memo to his staff at Spotify in which he said that the um, Rogan's use of racial slurs were hurtful and inconsistent with the company values, but he did not believe that silencing the podcaster was the answer. Your reaction? Yeah, thanks for having me, David. So we've got here a controversy where we've got two actors. We've got Spotify, we've got Joe Rogan, who are both being um, you know, pulled across the, the coals because of their participation in the proliferation of hateful content and misinformation. So Spotify is in a kind of a tough position because they're balancing the needs of their consumers, their employees, their investors, um, as well as the talent that are on their platform. So there are a lot of stakeholders here uh, that are looking for action, but each one of these sets of actors are probably looking for a slightly different response. So Spotify in its position is reckoning with what is actually a much larger trend that we're seeing these days, which is a larger category of social risk. It's almost a new category of enterprise risk. So companies across the board being forced to respond to social issues that are arising. And we've seen this way before Spotify with companies and how they're approaching things like racial justice and the murder of George Floyd, even the George of voting laws and to some extent even last week bomb threats against HBCUs. So this is part of a larger norm, but we what we see is Spotify kind of going through a number of similar challenges that most businesses are facing these days. And to try to thread the needle, the CEO said that Spotify was going to dedicate $100 million towards licensing and developing content from artists and audio content from people who have been historically marginalized, historically marginalized groups. Is that enough or is that essentially trying to have it both ways in a way that won't satisfy people who want some direct action? Yeah, it's a great question. Look, I don't think anyone is going to be 100% satisfied here. Um, the the commitment for a hundred million dollar investment towards um, marginalized artists and content creators is potentially a great start. I don't think we know yet what that's going to look like in practice. But again, this is sort of this is Spotify's attempt to thread that needle between its consumers, um, the artists that are calling for Joe Rogan to be taken off of the platform, um, but then also their financial interest in maintaining a relationship with Rogan because as a platform, these types of podcasts are very lucrative um, when it comes to their service. There does seem to be a move across many corporations towards more sort of social corporate responsibility. Where is the public though in terms of making its decisions based on whether a company is is acting responsibly or not or in alignment with their values? Yeah, that's a great question and something that we've looked into a lot recently with Penn State University. We researched voters across the political spectrum and their views on issues related to environment, social and governance issues and businesses role in them. And what we found was that across the board, both Republicans and Democrats very strongly support 
corporate action on these issues. Um, what was even more interesting was that under in the under 45 age range, that uh, majority rises significantly. So what we can see is not only uh, a general majority that was surprising because I think popular narrative seems to indicate that um, these are issues that only Democrats care about. That is not the case. But then as we look at the under 45 range of, of voters, the interest in companies responding to these issues skyrockets, which tells me that this is a trend that is really here to stay. If you look across the talent pipeline and the tight labor markets that we're feeling the impacts of on a daily basis, as well as the great transfer of wealth and the kind of investors who are going to be spending mass amounts of money in the market in the upcoming years, as well as policymakers who will eventually be responding to these under 45 voters as they become the primary voting contingent in American politics. This is a trend that is not going anywhere and businesses are only going to have to respond more. And so interesting that both Republicans and Democrats would say that businesses need to do this. I imagine Democrats, maybe it has to do with values in terms of responsibility. Republicans, maybe it has to do with the government not dictating whether, you know, how to solve these things, but essentially businesses fixing these problems, trying to get better behavior themselves. Yeah, I think that that's definitely part of it. I mean, there is also research out there that shows the the trust in our institutions and how that is shifting over the years. So right now, businesses are enjoying a higher level of trust than government is. But one of the other interesting things that we saw in our research with Penn State was that the language that we use to describe issues matters significantly. And I know we're, we're getting a little bit beyond just racial justice, social justice issues like um, Spotify has sort of brought into the picture. But when we look at issues related to climate, we see that um, Republicans and Democrats alike put climate change in the top five priority issues, but they also think about it in different ways. So climate change as a term can sometimes be a bit off-putting, but when we think about it in terms of energy management, at water management, these are terms that Republicans respond to in a much more positive way. When we come back to diversity and inclusion issues, we can see that on both sides of the aisle, there's actually a very, very strong support for both diversity inclusion practices within businesses, but also merit-based hiring and promotion, which is very interesting because we we sort of went into this research expecting to see a Democrat Republican split on those two issues. But in fact, both sides of the aisle had a large amount of support for both. Regarding Spotify, Spotify tries to sort of figure this out with Joe Rogan. There is this argument that some supporters of Spotify and the CEO are putting forward, and that is, well, look, it's Joe Rogan. We we respect the First Amendment, and we should provide a platform. But the First Amendment doesn't guarantee anybody a platform on a private business. I mean, if Joe Rogan is fired from Spotify, it's not a violation of the First Amendment. He can still stand out on the public sidewalk outside their headquarters and do a show there. So I wonder if Spotify gets itself in a little bit of trouble by wrapping itself into the First Amendment when it's a private company. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point, and you're right. No, no individual has the right to that sort of a platform. Um, but again, we're threading this needle, or Spotify is, of profit and stakeholder demands. The other thing I would say too is that uh, although we are guaranteed our First Amendment rights, um, there's also this balance of the right versus responsibility. And so, at, at what point of that needle where Spotify is trying to kind of 
have it always or, or trying to make a number of different stakeholders happy. Um, what is their responsibility um, in terms of monitoring free speech? Um, they are in, for all intents and purposes, playing the role of a moderator in what is now a town square. And how much more difficult does it become for them in their town square when they have their client essentially, Joe Rogan is out doing comedy shows now and essentially laughing and making jokes about the trouble that he's created for himself. I would imagine Spotify would like him to just shut up, just don't talk about this, go about doing your show or keeping you, but don't make matters worse. I would assume that there are probably a lot of conversations along those lines that we're not privy to. Um, but I think that both parties have a financial, um, there's there's a lot of money at stake for both parties to, to keep Joe Rogan on the platform. And Joe Rogan probably wants to stay on a mainstream platform as opposed to going off to one of the more um, fringe platforms, we, should, we can say, um, that have invited him and made him a financial offer. For the other part about this, and Joe Rogan has been very skeptical about vaccines and their efficacy and effectiveness. Um, there is a segment of the US society that believes that the pharmaceuticals have been bad actors in all of this, that the pharmaceuticals are making so much money off of the pandemic. Is there a certain sort of responsibility that the pharmaceuticals have to say, look, we're not just about making drugs that, that help people. We are investing in communities. We are taking social responsibility seriously on various things. We're trying to make uh, medications um, perhaps uh, available to people who can't afford them. Oh, absolutely. And I actually think that a lot of uh, pharmaceutical companies are doing just that. I mean, the, the pharmaceutical industry is off maligned um, in the press and, and in political circles. But um, at the end of the day, that, that industry is what has saved us from the, this pandemic. And I think that they are doing quite a bit to protect our communities, invest in them and make sure, for example, that um, they're testing regimes um, and research inclu include a broader swath of people so that they can make sure that um, the drugs that they're creating benefit everyone equally. So I, I do think that there is a responsibility there, but I think it's one that they're taking seriously. And the irony is, is that I think if there's one issue that the far right and the far left agree upon, they believe that uh, that pharmaceuticals have essentially bought Democrats and Republicans into making sure that Washington does not regulate the pharmaceuticals at all and require that pharmaceuticals essentially lower their prices. But that's a that's a whole other issue. Where do you see this going with Spotify and Joe Rogan? Does he, does he survive on Spotify? Does Spotify lose even more artists? They've lost. Um, let's see, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell. There are others that are threatening to quit because Joe Rogan is still there. So I'm not a music industry expert, but I do think that it is a, a bit of a to be continued situation. At the end of the day, I think there are probably a lot of other stakeholders that have more control over the, the music side of this that won't necessarily allow for um, artists to just single handedly remove their music from Spotify as a platform. But you know, it's also important I think to realize that Spotify doesn't necessarily make its money from just the music. I think that as a platform, they're looking at their business model as more focused on, on podcasts perhaps than the music itself. So at the end of the day, they will be looking at their, their business model and what their bottom line means in terms of the decisions that they will take, whether it's about Joe Rogan, the artists that are on their platform or other podcasters and the kind of platform that, that they are using and messages that they're making. Um, available to millions of people through their platform. 
And it certainly would, uh, I imagine, would help Spotify if Joe Rogan were to deliver some more heartfelt apologies and show that he's actually learned from uh, some of the stuff that's been coming out about him lately. But in any case, Lindsay Sigleton, she is the managing director at uh, Rock Solutions. Again, it's a bipartisan public affairs firm in Washington, D.C. Uh, Lindsay, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. You got it. Food and energy profits, yes, profits. Welcome back to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. For anybody who's been buying gasoline or beef or chicken over the last few years, you've undoubtedly seen that prices have gone way up. Well, there's a catch to all of this. And here to talk about it is Amanda Starbuck. She's the research director for Food and Water Watch. Amanda, thanks for joining us. So the um, consumer price index over the last two years has gone up 8.5%. But you've got data that has found that a lot of food energy sectors have gone up a lot more, right? Absolutely, yeah. We've seen you know prices going up as high as 20% for chicken breast um, and as high as 31% for gasoline. So the things that really hit people most close at home, the things that you know they need to get them to their jobs and to put food on the table, are really seeing the most dramatic um, spikes in inflation. And this means higher profits, of course, for these companies. I was looking at some of the data. Tyson's Foods is up 11% over the last two years. They make, of course, they do all the chicken farming. Costco is up a 28% over the past two years compared to pre-pandemic levels. So essentially, they are they are taking more profits at a time when consumers are already having to pay more because of inflation and because of the CPI. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that we talk about when it comes to food and to gasoline, you know, in these industries that are so highly concentrated is that prices are very sticky. So when there is an issue and prices do go up, because it's such as we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, they don't necessarily come down again when things smooth out. And we've really seen that in these industries. You know, they're doing fine. Revenue has increased, as you mentioned, for the top, you know, supermarket um, that, you know, conglomerates that we have, the top meat packing plants that we have. Profits have gone through the roof. They're you know, competent their executives at really high rates. Meanwhile, the workers are really not seeing much of a wage increase, and we're really feeling the pinch when we check out the supermarket aisle. Now, some of these industries, they will say, as they've said over the last years, look, we're in unprecedented times between the pandemic, between supply chain issues. We're forced to raise prices because of scarcity and and all the rest, which is fine, but that's a different issue than these companies taking record profits off of it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It goes back to that stickiness issue, right? They'll raise prices when it, you know, when it suits them and when they need to, perhaps, but they don't necessarily lower the prices and give those benefits back to the consumers. And they really, you know, use this this pandemic and this economic crisis as a smokescreen for keeping prices high. Meanwhile, just really fattening the pockets of their executives. Now, what if anything? Well, one thing that people suggest could be done is that the government could step in and force some of these executives to testify about their profit mm-hmm. gouging and everything else they're doing. Where is Congress right now on this? Yeah, there's there's a bill that's been um, proposed called that would be looking at um, pandemic profiteering. Um, basically, that very question of you know, look, are there companies, are there instances that companies really taking advantage of this you know serious social and public health crisis to make more money? That's just really a small step, but that's really a band-aid on a much bigger problem. We really need to comprehensively address um, antitrust and corporate consolidation as a whole within this country if we want to prevent this from happening again. Is that really the issue that these companies have essentially a monopoly over the market, whether it's chicken or whether it's supplies of foodstuffs? And, and as a result, because there are so few people who are involved mm-hmm. in this business that, well, just a couple of them can raise prices and there's nothing consumers can really do about it. That's exactly what's happening here. Look, the top 
for um, supermarket companies, and this includes Walmart and Costco as well, Walmart alone takes in about one-third of all food dollars that we spend at grocery stores in the U.S. Combined, these companies take in about 75%. Three out of every four dollars is spent on food goes to just four companies. So it's very easy for them in this environment where there's very little competition, where they have really successfully you know, driven out the smaller, smaller retailers, smaller mom-and-pop shops to keep prices high. And consumers don't have a choice of shopping elsewhere. And what's been the reaction from consumers? Well, first of all, are consumers aware of this? I mean, I know that most consumers are probably aware that their prices are up, but mm -hmm. the idea that these companies behind these prices are, are taking sort of even greater profits, how aware are consumers to this problem? You know, the, like you said, it's def they're definitely aware when they you know, hit their, their checkbooks and their pocketbooks and such. Um, but I really think we do need to raise awareness of what's going on here, you know, really kind of counter the industry narrative prices are high and that's just the way it is. We need to you know, cover our expenses and really kind of show, pull the curtain, show what is really happening. And this is a systematic slide problem that's been going on for a long time. Are there any particular companies in the energy sector or the food sector that are actually doing the right thing? That, you know, okay, they raise prices <laughs> because of supply chain issues or because of the pandemic, but prices are going back down um, because of the laws of supply and demand. Are there any good actors in the midst of all this? <laughs> Um, I don't think at that level, when you have that much, you know, power over the economy as a whole, you know, power is going to corrupt and you're going to do whatever you can when you're a big corporation like that. That's how they got big in the first place, right? Let's be real here. Companies like Walmart did not get big by doing the right thing. They got large by undercutting their competitors by, you know, pushing prices below what they actually were making money on. And then once their competitors have gone under, raising the prices up again. That's really just their kind of corporate handbook. So I wouldn't expect any of these companies to be doing the right thing. They're where they are today because they have really manipulated the system. Again, the consumer price, in, uh, consumer price index has gone up 8.5% uh, over the last two years. Energy costs up 26%. In order to feed a family of four over the last two years, that has gone up 33% with um, beef up 19%, poultry 19%, milk 17%, eggs 16%. So again, at mm -hmm. least twice mm -hmm. as much as the consumer price index has Absolutely. has risen. It's I mean, it's astounding. Mm -hmm. It is astounding, and it is you know very telling that the industries that we see the most in are you know the big meat companies um, and the big energy companies. Ones that you know organizations like Food and Water Watch and others have really kind of rallied behind and really showed you know that they are really gaming the system. What can consumers do? I mean, short of obviously getting members of Congress to break up the monopolies and, and to stop this kind of stuff. But in terms of our own choices about where we shop and which products we buy, is there something that consumers can be armed with in order to make the kind of choices so that they can get around some of this? Yeah, look, I mean, we're all we're all for people who are eating, you know, to their their values. And if you can afford to buy local from your farmer, if you can afford and you know have access to locally owned shops, that's great. But that's not going to fix the system. We cannot shop our way out of the system. The market power is just too great for these companies. So we really need to really kind of vote with our votes and vote for legislatures, vote for you know leaders who will actually take on the power of these industries. And what do you hear from the industry leaders when they're confronted about this? Yeah, that's a very good question. A lot of kind of finger pointing and saying, oh, you don't quite understand how the economy works or, you know, prices have just gone up because we need them to. You know, a lot of just really kind of shifting the blame and, and trying to distract us, I think. You know, the COVID pandemic really was a distraction that kind of allowed them to run rapid.
And it suggests that, I mean, if given the opportunity, uh, corporate America, whether it's you know food companies or energy companies, when people are not paying attention, they will go for whatever they can do to pad their profits. And we've seen that you know time and time mm-hmm. again across so many different particular sectors. Is there something unique though about say the energy sector and how they're able to get away with this? Now that's a really good question. I can't speak as much um, to the energy sector, but at least you know with the food sector, I think what is really unique is how highly concentrated you know these industries are. That's one thing. You know the top uh, the top four beef companies you know slaughter four out of every five cattle that we have. That is just an enormous amount of corporate consolidation. Um, and and the grocery industry I alluded to earlier, and that's why they're able to you know in 2020 when we were all distracted by this global pandemic. You know, Walmart was able to pay one of the executives $45 million in compensation, and their CEO earned a thousand times, nearly a thousand times as much as the medium worker. And those workers, I mean, the companies will say, oh, well, we have raised worker wages. And yes, there's been a little bit of raising of worker wages, but it doesn't even, it doesn't keep track, it doesn't keep up with the exorbitant um, raises mm-hmm. that are going to these executives. So that the gap between mm-hmm. executives at a company and workers continues, continues to widen. Absolutely, yeah. So Walmart, you know, in the 2020 filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission, you know, they were reporting about $22,000, just over $22,000 for their median employee. You know, if you are a family of four and you're trying to raise them on $22,000, you are below the poverty line. Now, this is the same time that food prices have gone up so significantly. So the USDA has what they call a thrifty food plan, and that's what you should expect to pay to put food on your table at the very bare minimum. You know, cutting corners as much as you can, cooking things from home, that has gone up a full 30% over the last two years. So if you're one of these low-wage workers working in a place like Walmart, you can expect to spend nearly half of your income just on food. It may be Walmart's the only store that you have to even shop from because they have been so successful at really undercutting the competition. And I gather that uh, there's a correlation between higher energy prices and higher food prices. So when the energy companies raise the price of gasoline, then the cost of transporting food from one part of the mm-hmm. country to the next goes higher. And then the companies can then pass along mm-hmm. that, you know, the people who are selling the chicken or the beef, they can pass along that increase as well to the consumer. So mm-hmm. it never really affects the bottom line of the people who are selling cattle and beef and milk and, and yeah. eggs. Yeah, yeah, but it does hurt the farmers, unfortunately. I mean, they're not seeing the same kind of increases in what they have. You know, 2020 is a really hard year for the agricultural industry in general, for farmers, right? Not for the big corporations. And so we see continuing that we've seen over the course of the last several years, prices for beef and pork and poultry rising. Well, farmers really are not making much more. Where is the Biden administration in terms of their awareness or their involvement in trying to to try to fix this? A really good question. Um, They've been talking a really good talk. Been some, you know, progressive appointees and some really good talks from the Biden administration on tackling antitrust. What we really want to see is really follow through, right? There's an executive order that recently, last year, that would have, you know, basically ordered agencies to look at this issue and to really kind of put a plan into place. But we really want to see action, right? Talk cheap. We want to see the Biden administration, the Department of Justice, really kind of going after, you know, big core players. It starts holding them accountable for what has happened there during the pandemic. But we really need to have an honest conversation about how we look and how we enforce our antitrust law in this country. And imagine like other corporate sectors, these food companies, these energy companies give a ton of money to members of Congress in both parties, which essentially causes members mm-hmm. of Congress in both parties to do nothing, to look the other way. Yep, that's a problem here too. So I mean, there are so many issues that this is not, like I mentioned, not a problem that we can solve just by where we shop with our dollars. We really need to vote for, you know, public officials who are held accountable and can really stand up to this 
a massive amount of power that we have in these industries. Well, a reminder to everybody out there who is struggling, whether it's you know food or energy, there are thankfully in some states, and there are some federal programs where you can get food assistance, get local community assistance if you're having difficulty during the wintertime, either heating your home or putting food on the table for your family. But in any case, Amanda Starbucks, she's a research director for Food and Water Watch. Amanda, it's troubling news, but I'm glad you're out there bringing it to our attention about these corporate profiteering that's taking place at a time when food and energy prices are rising. So thanks for joining us, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.